This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Vine Guy podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And today I have the delightful pleasure of introducing Paul Sloan, owner and vidyarn of Small Vines Wines. Now, Paul started as a busboy in high school, learning about wine from passionate restaurateurs. We'll get to that in a minute. A high school busboy drinking wine on the job. He embraced wine with an unquestionable desire to read and taste everything he could, and eventually worked his way up to the assistant wine buyer position at John Ash and Company. As a very young wine steward, he was given many opportunities to taste both California classic wines as well as wines from all over the world. One night, his life would change forever when a person dining alone offered him a taste of a very rare Burgundy. This ethereal experience with one of the world's greatest wines sent him on a quest for more knowledge and forever fueled his drive to make captivating wines like that. He launched into self-study, and soon discovered that some of the great Pinot Noirs in the world come from mature, small vines. I guess maybe that's where the name of his uh, vineyard came from. Now, soon after this experience, Paul met Catherine, and they, of course, fell in love. As adventurous partners in rock climbing and mountain biking, they took a sabbatical and traveled the country, only to return home to the most beautiful place on earth, Sonoma County, California, where Paul's family has been there for now three generations. Paul returned to college to get his viticultural degree and simultaneously went to work for one of the most respected wine growers in the country, Warren Dutton of Dutton Ranch. I completely agree with that statement. In 1998, it was Warren himself who encouraged Paul to follow his innovative pioneering spirit and to start planting vineyards his own way. So Paul and Catherine launched Small Vines, The hard work of planting and farming vineyards came naturally to both of them since they both grew up on ranches raising cattle. And so equally demanding jobs involving long days, hard work, and appreciation for getting their hands dirty was second nature to them. Today, they are dedicated to achieving smaller yields from higher density European style spacing of the vines in order to grow only the highest quality wine grapes. As innovative wine growers, It took years of planting and farming vineyards for hire as a vineyard development and management company to save enough money to eventually lease back one of their first high-density vineyards. In 2005, Paul was able to craft a tiny batch of wine for release, and the wines immediately received critical acclaim and were sold out. Wow. Well, it goes on and on. And Paul, I have to say, this is quite an impressive resume. And Welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for actually taking the time today. I know that you're pretty busy this time of year, and so I'm very grateful that you're able to spend a, uh, this time with me on the podcast. It's it's my pleasure, Scott, and, and thank you for uh, inviting us to be a part of your amazing show. Um, I have to admit, uh, you reading my last 25 years, or actually 28 years or more of history, uh, gives me chills still to this day to think that that uh, this is the path we've chosen and we actually somehow achieved uh, these goals and and uh, are producing wines in, in the western part of the Sonoma Coast of Sonoma County. So uh, thanks for having us on the show. Well, before we get started, Paul, I got to know, <laughs> what was that ethereal wine that changed your life forever? You know, it's it's one of those bottles that I wish I had a case of. <laughs> Nineteen seventy eight uh, Romani Conti, uh, Domaine de la Romani Conti. So um, it was seventeen years old at the time. The bottle was and kind of aged to perfection. And a very very generous person shared a six ounce pour of that wine with me. It had to be a thousand dollars worth of wine because the bottle was over. $3,000 uh, on the list. So um, what an amazing experience. So it, back then it was, it was $3,000 on the list. Wow. Yeah. You know, when, when you have a, a one bottle of something and every year you kind of, I wouldn't say we looked online, but you know, you had resources to see what other people were charging for that wine on lists and we would 
keep kind of raising the price. It was about $3,500 uh, for that bottle on our, on our list. I remember the day I got hired at John Ashen company and I was leafing through the wine list. And when I got to the DRC, you know, pages, and saw $3,500 and knew nothing about wine at that point. It was like, wow, imagine what the tip would be if I could sell that bottle of wine, you know? And then sure enough, a year and a half later, I actually did uh, sell that bottle of wine. And and got to try it. And got to try it even better, right? Right. So so that was your aha moment. That started you on the path. And then you eventually ended up working for Warren Dutton. How did how did that come about? Well, after traveling uh, with my now wife and girlfriend at the time, uh, you know, I love the great outdoors and adventuring. Um, I kind of woke up uh, after 10 months of living in the back of a pickup truck with my my girlfriend, now wife. And uh, um, I said, honey, uh, honey, I I need to be a vineyard own. I just I I need to go back to Sonoma County and uh, I want to study wine grape farming and and plant. Uh, I had this idea of planting a unique style of vineyard in California that would give us wines that required less manipulation to make them, less sort of winemaking, if you will. Um, so when I came back, my grandfather was a, a cowboy. Uh, he was actually a doctor, but he, he his hobby was being a cowboy. So I went on a horseback ride up in the, it was called the Reno Sierra Riders, RSR. And I went on a horseback ride with my grandfather, you know, just, uh, and it's kind of a good old boys club and lots of, lots of cowboys and Warren Dutton was up there. And, uh, I just happened to be right alongside of him, you know, one day and said, ah, what do you do for work? I said, well, I have this idea. He said, oh, you should come work for me. It took all of 30 seconds of meeting Warren before he offered me a job. (laughs) And, uh, so I did, I, we finished the ride a, a week later and, um, I called him up when we, we got back and said, Hey, were you serious? I, I would love to come down and, and work for you. And, uh, and so I had a job then working for one of the best uh, vineyard developers, vineyard managers in all of Sonoma County. And, um, I then enrolled in the Santa Rosa junior college, uh, viticulture program, and uh, which was a fabulous, fabulous program. We spent a lot of time out in vineyards pruning and learning about different trellis techniques and, uh, and a lot of botany, biology, soil science, you know, all of these fundamentals for, for farming. And so I spent two years uh, working with Warren and his his incredible sons, Joe and Steve, and, um, and uh, really learning the ropes of how to farm wine grapes uh, uh, over those two years uh, while getting my degree in viticulture. Well, there really is uh, no better family. I mean, they're, they're sort of like Sonoma County royalty, the, the Dutton family. And, and it is ironic that they really are the original Dutton Ranch, yeah. uh, as opposed to the Yellowstone series. Because from time <laughs> to time, I actually do wear my uh, Dutton Ranch, the, the Sonoma County Dutton Ranch hat somewhere. And they're like, oh, are you a fan of Yellowstone? Well, yes, but <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> then we uh, get into the conversation about uh, Steve and Joe, and it's always wonderful, absolutely yeah. wonderful. So you you came up with this idea of doing these high density planting, which at the time wasn't being done anywhere, to the best of my knowledge, wasn't really being done anywhere in California. And and you with with no disrespect to what I'm about to say, Paul, but you know you're, you're kind of a guy who went to a you know you went to a fabulous junior college. I mean, a fantastic education, but you know to develop the notion of doing something completely outside the envelope. Where did that come from? Wow, yeah, it's I mean there there's a point in your career or many points in my career where little light bulbs would go off in oh. That's what affects natural acidity in wine. And oh, that's how you retain, you know, fruit with lower sugar levels. And, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are two varietals that I think their greatest expression comes from brighter natural acidity and lower sugar levels when the flavors are there for those wines to actually be harvested. That fruit is ready to be harvested. So, I 
I, it was 1993 when I started uh, assisting at John Ashton Company, purchasing the wines at this restaurant. And I had the opportunity to taste some of the great producers that made California Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from the 1960s and 70s and early 1980s. And what was coming out in the early 1990s, the wines were incredibly different. So, of course, being young in my in my 20s, I would ask myself, what changed? You know, what why this change? And I'm I will never say that one wine is better than another, right? The the wines from the 90s had different characteristics. They were a little uh bigger wines, they you know had more body, they didn't age as well, um, and in some cases didn't pair as well with the food that we were serving at the restaurant that I was at. So I was really fascinated by these older California Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs. And then, of course, you taste Burgundy and you say, wow, the concentration of flavor of these wines with that acidity, ageability, lower alcohol content, what's going on here? So then you start studying, right? You start reading books and visiting wineries and traveling. And I realized that phylloxera in California had a tremendous effect on the style of wines. So backing up just a little bit, the the vineyard trellis design of California was built around the tractors we were farming orchards with in 1933 when uh, prohibition was lifted. So we're going back quite a ways here where we're orchard farmers. We're farming prunes and apples and cherries and walnuts. And we have very large, very wide tractors, very stable tractors. And when we started being able to replant vineyards post-prohibition, we built the vineyards around these tractors. So we had a 12-foot tractor row. Uh, and we did nothing with the canopy. It was just a big bushy umbrella of of shade. And in many cases, too much shade. The fruit did not see enough sunlight. But in the best vineyards where the vines were balanced, we got dappled sunlight on the fruit, but we had an umbrella of shade, kind of like carrying a parasol on a hot sunny day. Sunny day. And uh, that preserved the natural acidity of the fruit, and it ripened the fruit with less sugar, resulting in more moderated alcohol wines um, that nobody was really having to add acid to. And those wines aged very well, but these were big vines. They had 20 or 30 pounds of grapes on them. So the concentration of flavor that I started seeing in Burgundy was like, well, how are they getting this concentration of flavor uh, with that acidity and so forth? So then I started thinking about their very high density plantings, these meter by meter plantings in Burgundy. Uh, of course, California is not, not Burgundy, so we'll touch on that later, but when phylloxera came through in the 1980s, that's when we narrowed our vine rows up to the more modern tractors of the 1980s to an eight foot tractor row. But now we had to do something with the canopy. So we started trapping it between wires and creating this vertical canopy that exposed the fruit to a tremendous amount more sunshine. And that's when the alcohol content shot up, the natural acidity of the fruit started uh, diminishing, and it changed the style of wine in California. So the light bulb started going off when I started realizing this. And I said, ah, what if we narrowed that vine row up more like Burgundy to a four-foot tractor row, reduce the amount of sunshine the fruit saw by half, uh, we would preserve maybe more natural acidity, ripen more through photosynthesis of the leaves, less through direct sunlight on the fruit, and uh, kind of giving us more age-worthy, more uh, bright natural acidity, food-friendly wines. Um, but then with that vine competition by planting so closely together, you could maybe increase the concentration of flavor. So so that was kind of the the theory that I developed over several years um, as a wine steward, and then ultimately decided that that's how I wanted to plant all of the vineyards I made wine from. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, there was no one point. It was just a series of like theories and ideas that sort of connected, uh, over time. So that is, that is fascinating. I, I've never heard the history of how tractors drove vineyard management 
before. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, you you farm with the equipment you have at the time. I mean, you must have like really small tractors right now (laughs) that you have access to. But, you know, I, I went across the pond. I, I went to, because in, in Burgundy, they were farming with horses. That's why they planted meter wide rows. Before that, the, the Celestine monks were just hoeing everything. They actually had higher density plantings before phylloxera in the 1800s affected their planting. So when they started mechanizing with horses, that's when they planted the meter wide tractor row. And when tractors were invented, they built tractors to fit their vineyards. The vineyards came first for them and the tractors came later. So I just went across the pond. I went uh, you know, across the Atlantic and went to France and found tractors that were lightweight and wouldn't compact our soils and would fit in what I had planted. And, and so we're very efficient with farming with tractors and, and so forth, just like anybody else, you know, we can spray and mow and, you know, under, under vine mow and, uh, you know, regeneratively farming, et cetera. Um, but we're just doing it in a much narrower spacing over over the top of the vine rows. All right, Paul, Paul, so that's actually an interesting point that you just brought up. Uh, you, we've talked about trellising. We talked about vine spacing. And you just touched on soil management. And specifically, you used a term of art, regenerative, regenerative farming. Now, a lot of people know what organic farming is or biodynamic farming is or sustainable farming is. But what is regenerative farming? Yeah, it's um, I would say it's a, a lifetime of study. So, you know, I'm I'm still learning. But this is a, a technique. Um, you know, when I when I operate tractors, I often wear headphones. And nowadays you can listen to books on tape uh, through your headphones. So or, or even the Vine Guy podcast. Yeah, or the Vine Guy podcast, exactly. And I do. I listen to podcasts and books. And and uh, so I started off, I, I listened to a book by a gentleman by the name of Gabe Brown. Uh, and Gabe is actually a, you know, cattle rancher in the, in the Midwest of the United States. And uh, he started this idea of you know, farm everything in place and bring your cattle to where your feed is rather than cutting bales of hay and transporting the hay to a concentrated area of where you have your cattle and and this sort of thing and regenerate, use the animals as a part of the equation of how you have a healthy soil and um, leave the soil covered, don't disc and, and then replant uh, seed, but uh, protect the microorganisms in the soil by leaving a thatch of cover of grasses and so forth. So I've, I've studied this for a number of years now, and it's very different uh, farming a perennial crop, right? Farming wine grapes is very different than pasture management for grazing cattle, um, but trying to learn and experiment with how do I grow 95% of the food that my vines need just through my cover crop? How do I not cultivate and plant multiple different species, uh, mustards and radishes that have deep tap roots that will do the cultivation for me. And, and then when you mow and that root decays, then the microorganisms break that down and you're feeding your vines through your pasture management, your, your undervine management, leaving grass thatch everywhere, no exposed soil in the vineyard. Um, we hardly bring in any compost. We don't use any synthetic fertilizers. We don't irrigate our vines. We dry farm everything. Um, so these are these are techniques that if if you find the right soils, right? It's not every site you can do this with. Some sites are too rocky and too steep, and and not they don't have enough soil to dry farm. Other sites are too deep and the soils are too deep and you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get enough yield if you don't irrigate and the wines are never going to be that good uh, because the soils are so deep. They're kind of like village level wines, you know, if you will, in other parts of the world. So uh, we don't have that in California, but, you know, I've kind of sought out what I think are ideal soils that I can dry farm, but control the vigor of the vine uh, and then do this regenerative uh, soil management 
you sequester a lot more carbon uh, this way. So the best way to reverse greenhouse gas emissions is to use plants to pull in carbon into the soil and then use that carbon to actually refeed the plants. So uh, it's a very holistic, uh, I think it goes way beyond organics and biodynamics. Although I, I am an organic and biodynamic farmer, uh, I think regenerative is the first certification I've ever actually wanted to achieve because it's so encompassing of how do we have our children and our children's children um, farm and make the planet a better place by our practices. And, and that makes complete sense. How, how many different vineyard sites are you farming? Right now I farm, uh, let's see, nine different uh, vineyard sites and six of which are uh, estate vineyards for making wine from ourselves. We don't sell any fruit. Um, so we're estate grower producers, but we do a small amount of farming for others. Um, and that's kind of turned. You know, I used to be a vineyard manager developer primarily. Um, in the beginning, that was my means to how to become a vineyard own. <laughs> uh, but I've been able to luckily kind of turn that tide and and become a vineyard own and less of a vineyard manager developer uh, over time. So, and, and you touched again on on organic farming, biodynamic farming. Uh, how do you how do you see those techniques impacting? future generations, specifically your, maybe your future generations, uh, who you know may be uh, one day inheriting this land? Um, you know, or, organics is kind of the, the basis, um, you know, just if you need to do mildew protection and so forth, having naturally derived materials protecting your plants is uh, and your fruit, your crop is kind of fundamental rather than kind of a uh, synthetic chemical um, approach, having a naturally derived approach. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with, with organics, you kind of have to scratch your head and say, is the, the fossil fuel increase of fossil fuel consumption actually better for the planet? Because you're making two to three times more passes a year with organics. So never certified organic because it's it's somewhat i'll say dogmatic in in a way that you're not looking beyond how do we how do we get away how do we strengthen the health of the vines how do we have the vines do the work for themselves so we can reduce our number of passes how do we how do we let the plant kind of be self-sustaining as much as possible so in comes biodynamics uh, this is where uh, biodynamics in in uh, a very brief and very simplistic definition, homeopathy in wine growing. Um, you know, if you ever took vitamin C when you were around somebody that had a cold and you felt like you might be just starting to get a cold, well, that's biodynamics. You're you're kind of implementing these preparations. Some people take it into a much more spiritual and, you know, uh, into the, you know, the sky and the earth and the moon and and way beyond and good on them. If, if they, that gets them in their vineyard more and something they believe in, but it doesn't have to be that you can, you can see positive benefits from the compost teas and the, the plant-based, um, you know, material that you're spraying, you see positive benefits with the plants and you can leave it at that, or you can go way, way deeper into biodynamic study um, and, and take it for what you want, but homeopathy and wine growing. But once again, sort of insular or closed biodynamics is a huge proponent of cultivation well, with regenerative farming. We don't believe that cultivation should be a part of of farming unless absolutely necessary, um, unless you need to to completely eradicate a type of grass or reestablish a, a, a row. But the exposure of soil to solar radiation is a negative to the, the microorganisms in the soil and erosion and so forth. So we, we like to try to keep the soils completely covered. So once again, I'm, I'm away from the dogmatism of biodynamics and into thinking intelligently about what is best for soil 
Um, and, and so I'm looking towards something that is going to regenerate the nutrients in place, less of a import export philosophy and more of a, how do I, how do I care for this system all in one, all in place and less fossil fuels, less transporting of materials in and out, less, uh, you know, purchasing of chemicals and applying them. Um, so it, it becomes a completely different realm of consciousness for farming that I, I will stand on that soapbox for the rest of my life um, in, in the farming realm. And not to mention, I've seen my wines get better. Is it vine age? Is it my approach to farming? Is it my knowledge in vinification and fermentation management? Probably all of the above. You know, there's probably no one thing I, I can't say, oh, regenerative farming is made better wines without a doubt, but I can say I've seen the wines get better. And so I'll continue down the the path, um, well, the path <laughs> if you will. So call it organic or biodynamic or regenerative. What I can tell you is that you are farming responsibly. And, and I wish this, uh, this is only going to be an audio podcast. I wish it, there was a uh, a video version of this because if people could see the passion that you are talking about this your your facial expressions your hand gestures it's you're, it's infectious i'm i'm leaning in and learning so much about different farming techniques but call it what you will the passion in your voice it tells me paul that you farm responsibly and that's what you care about well thank you and that's i I hope that uh, we'll see more of this, and I do. I read articles every day about uh, about wonderful producers uh, and their conversion all over the world to this style of farming, and I it excites me because it it lets me know that there's a future in what we're doing. Um, you know that that it's it's going to be something people want to keep because it actually is good for the planet to have these vineyards around, uh, and as people learn about what we're doing it's it's going to be something that is here for the long term uh which is exciting so right and it produces tasty stuff <laughs> well at the end of the day i mean it's as much as uh we all do and we get passionate about all these different aspects let's let's not forget that a tasty glass of wine is kind of what the end game is all about and yeah. when when that's what you produce is like wow the wines are getting better and i get to you know farm this way then that gets really really exciting so how many uh you, you mentioned six vineyards the, the estate vineyards i think you said six um what what is your case production from from your vineyards? Uh, so we're estate grown. So there's the the unfortunate reality that it fluctuates. Um, I would say our our goal or our our ideal crop load would put us right between twenty five hundred and three thousand cases. Um, one of the issues we have on the western part of the Sonoma Coast in Sonoma County is setting enough fruit. Um, our spring can be very, very cold and wet and rainy and, um, you know, frost. We don't get hail like Burgundy does, but we have a lot of fog and the Pacific Ocean is just so cold that that's our biggest challenge is actually setting enough crop. Uh, so we're often down in the 12 or 1500 case range, uh, you know, maybe three years out of 10, we're only making 12 or 1500 cases of wine. And then, you know, we're making 2200 or 2500, you know, five years and then ideal 3000 cases. So we're, we're, rarely do we have what you would call a, a bumper crop. But part of that is my farming philosophy and my sort of paying attention to what the Grand Cru vineyards do in Burgundy and how they prune and how to balance a vine. And so I, I never sort of prune my vines to have 50% more crop than I would ever want and then drop 50% of the fruit on the vine. I don't believe in that. Uh, I don't believe you can improve wine quality by dropping 50% of your crop. I, th I think you 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 prune the vine to balance and that's the right amount of crop that you should take to the winery if mother nature blesses you with that amount of crop so uh, so that philosophy is maybe a little different than most of the other farmers in my in my area and that's the name small vines 
for, yeah. for your yeah. winery operation. So, uh, you know, all this talk about your, your wines is making me a little bit thirsty. And so it's now coming up to the, my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> What's in your glass? <laughs> so I understand you have two, two very different wines for us to try today, which I'm excited about. You, uh, you want to tell us what you're going to start with? Yeah, so uh, maybe we should go completely old world in style and and do the Pinot Noir first. Um, I love that because wow. the acidity in the Chardonnay is so high. It's kind of a, a great way to, uh, it's like having a sorbet at the end of a meal. You know, it cleanses the palate and sort of refreshes everything. So, um, so I'll start off with the uh, 2019 TBH Vineyard Pinot Noir. Um, so... You know, when we decided to to plant vineyards, um, we decided to plant 3,630 vines per acre. This is a four foot tractor row, three feet between vines. The average in our area is 1,089 vines per acre. So we're three and a half times more vines per acre than anybody else in the area. And we've talked about flavor concentration being one of it and acidity and maintaining acidity being the other. And you also maintain, as the vines mature, especially uh, a level of nuance to the, the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay fruit that I think is exceptional. And as the vines mature, you're seeing more and more of that in the wines. Um, the TBH Vineyard is an acronym for the Barlow Homestead. Uh, so this is uh, where my wife and I live. This is where our winery and tasting room are. We bought this historic farm property, um, not from the Barlow family, but the Barlow family were the, the people that originally built the home. And our winery building is a hundred year old uh, apple packing barn built during prohibition. Um, and then we converted it into a winery in 2017. So it's kind of a really neat historic property, old board form, poured concrete, uh, really spectacular uh, kind of legacy to the area. Um, we had been planting vineyards for 11 years by the time we bought the TBH Vineyard property. Uh, so we had a little bit more knowledge about what was making the best wines. You know, I was a, a, a sommelier, a wine steward, you know, coming into being a farmer. So unlike most of the farmers in the area, I followed the fruit to every winery that was buying fruit from vineyards I was planting and farming. And I would go in and taste the barrels and I would taste every single clone that we had planted to Pinot Noir. And I would have a notebook and I would take notes on, wow, this wine has so much concentration. That one has this perfume. And I have, I have these books and books filled with all of my tasting notes from, and you know, the Calera selection of Pinot Noir and the Swan selection of Pinot Noir are two heritage selections to California that really hands down uh, make some of the best wine in, in the region. So we planted most of this vineyard to Calera and Swan. Now the yields are extremely low. The clusters are teeny tiny. Uh, so you're not going to make money selling grapes from these two selections. You're, you're going to put that fruit in the bottle. Um, we're less, we're talking less than one pound of fruit per vine. Um, on a non-irrigated vine. So uh, the yields are extremely low, but it's so easy to make exceptional wine from, from these vines. So the, the 2019 is now we're what this is planted in 2009. So this is 11th leaf um, from, from these vines. We're kind of past that seven, eight year threshold of starting to get into the more serious realm of wine. Uh, I believe if you're doing really, really good farming, you don't necessarily need a whole lot of new oak. So this wine is um, barrel fermented, mostly French oak barrels, but uh, less than 20% new wood. Um, so very kind of minimal on, on that and more focusing on what is the fruit from this site. Uh, I, I want to make site specific, um, you know, wines that express the place that they're grown and they're not Burgundian in style. A lot of people say, oh, you're mimicking Burgundy. I say, no, Burgundy is a place. It's not a style. Uh, these are traditional wines. They're traditional because the alcohol content on this is, uh, what is it? 13.0. 
look at traditionally Pinot Noir and Chardonnay across the world for the last 80 years, and you will find 125 to 13.5% alcohol traditionally. And, and that's that's kind of where I put myself. I'm a traditionalist. The fruit is mature. It's phenolically ready to make wine from, um, but it gives me a resulting alcohol of right in the middle there, 13%. And not on purpose, but by tasting it, I said, that's ready to make wine from. And, and that's where we're at. And that's what the spacing helps give me. So um, I, I want to make sure I didn't misunderstand or mishear you. Did you say one pound of fruit per vine? <laughs> yeah, I know. When you think about the economics of what I'm doing, you're kind of going, wait, wait, don't you need to charge more for the wine to be financially viable? Well, we're going to find out in a minute how much you charge <laughs> for the wine. But I mean, you know, I, I I thought four to five, maybe three to four pounds per vine was ridiculously small. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, wow. Okay. So tell me what, what are you getting out of your glass of wine? Um, you know, the first things that come to mind are, uh, the, the fruit is maturing now, right? We're, we're dealing with a couple year old, a four year old bottle of wine. The 19 vintage was just a beautiful vintage, easy to make, uh, great wine. Um, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, a lot of kind of earthy notes in this. There's there's a lot of sort of leather, tobacco, herbs. Uh, and that's what I love about great Pinot Noir, that it's not just fruit um, and it's not just earth, but that you have this incredibly compact, complex array of aromas that kind of keep you coming back to the glass. It, it kind of makes me want to climb in and, and sort of experience the wine um, as often as possible. Oh, it's just, um, and and then I start thinking about what do I want to eat with this, you know, and I, I, duck is the first thing that comes to mind. It's kind of coming into that season uh, where duck is maybe, uh, you know, around and more available and, uh, you know, a smoked duck breast or something like that would just be uh, absolutely delicious with this wine. And, um, you know, they are food wines. They're age-worthy, food-friendly wines. And so it when I when I take a sip of this, it sort of makes me start salivating. And uh when when I think about a food wine, if I'm salivating, I start thinking about what do I want to eat with this wine? <laughs> That's exactly what it does uh, for me. So well, smoked duck breast with this Pinot Noir would be spectacular. Uh now you've got me thinking about it. Maybe even maybe even picking duck. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because that umami would just, be, you know, be fantastic with this wine. Yes, yes. No, exactly. It does have that sort of savory um, sort of umami characteristic in, in the wine that would uh, would absolutely go well with with baking ducks. So um, it's uh, making me hungry. It's only three o'clock and uh, <laughs> here <laughs> well well i'll tell you what why why don't we see if we can change your appetite a little bit and, and switch over to the chardonnay that you have in your glass um so some people might think it's funny to do chardonnay second but uh when i'm just tasting wine uh and not eating a meal i'll often um taste chardonnay second and the reason is uh, the pH is a little lower. The wine has a little more acidity uh, to it. So it tends to kind of cleanse or refresh the, the palate. So um, very traditional in the old world to taste uh, white wine second in, in high acid regions of, of winemaking. Once again, the uh, accent on this wine is from the resource from the vineyard. So we have, I believe, 3% uh, new oak on this Chardonnay, although it is 100% barrel fermented. Um, barrels are a lot like making tea out of a tea bag. You, you use them three times and they no longer impart flavor, um, but they can affect the texture, the body of the wine. And more than anything, the microoxygenation through the staves of the wood of the barrel um, lift the aromatics. And that's really the principal reason that I make Chardonnay fermented in oak barrels is for the aromatic prettiness. 
Uh, we've kind of converted most of the barrels are twice as large or even more than twice as large as a normal barrel. They're 500 liters. A normal barrel is about 228 liters. That's because the wine gets a little less oxygen through these thicker staves of these larger barrels, and the volume is less affected by the, the oak, um, but you still get that micro-oxygenation. So the aromatics are just jumping out. I get, I get citrus blossom and like star jasmine sort of floral notes leaping out of the glass. And then there's um, green apple and uh, Meyer lemon and... Um, there's almost a savory note, like a hint of lemongrass in this. So I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking halibut uh, with some lemongrass, uh, with a little Berblanc sauce, a little uh, white wine, butter, shallot sort of uh, thing. Uh, but that, you know, how halibut has that texture and richness that it's it's got enough density to it that it'll stand up to a wine with great concentration. Um, that's that's kind of what this, this wine is uh, asking for for me. Okay, this is a complete coincidence, and I wish I was making this up, but uh, you were kind enough to send me the, the wines, and I meant to try them with you today, but my mother-in-law was visiting a couple weeks ago, and she really wanted a piece of halibut, and she found the Chardonnay in the fridge, the small <laughs> Chardonnay in the fridge, and so while I was cooking the halibut, she opened the wine. Fantastic. And but that, am fantastic. I am I not right on this? <laughs> Paul, you nailed it. And I can't, I just really I'm blown away by what a small world coincidence that was. I didn't know actually how to tell you that story until just now. <laughs> As to why I don't have the white wine in front of me. <laughs> oh, if I could high five you through the through the Zoom screen here, that would be fantastic. But uh, no, I love that story. That that is so fantastic. And and I actually made halibut for my mother in law. Um, just it was her 80th birthday, and and uh, got to uh, a friend of ours gave us some halibut uh, from Alaska, and we cooked that up and did exactly that. And I had this bottle of wine. And I was like. Wow, what a great combo. So, uh, uh, look, and this halibut was from uh, Alaska that I caught. Uh, <laughs> oh, you were up there. Oh, I was up there fishing. Oh, and uh, and, and uh, yeah, I brought this halibut back. And yeah, so the, I, I can't believe this Alaskan <laughs> caught halibut with your wine for mother in law. Mm. That's just too many coincidences. There's something there. I think there's something really there. There's something there. And I have to say yeah. the wine was beautiful. And what really struck me about the wine, uh, in, in addition to all the notes that you're talking about, the thing that really stood out to me, Paul, was the balance. The, the balance in that Chardonnay was, it was perfect. It was, it was perfect. And it, it was very food friendly. The acidity was great. The, the fruit was super well integrated. Uh, and it was the structure was just it, it all came together. And that's one of the things that I look for in a wine is is structure first. And the balance was it was great. So well done. Well, thank you. You know, Scott, you use that word uh, structure and I love it and I use it all the time. But sometimes I find some of the folks visiting our tasting room kind of look at me like, what's what structure? And I would love to hear how would you describe structure to to your listeners? What what does that word mean uh, for them to think about as they're tasting a wine or thinking about pairing that wine with food or, or whatnot? Well, I can only describe what it, it means to me, and I, I hope it resonates with people. But for me, it's the foundation of a wine. Mm -hmm. So when I put it into my mouth, the first thing I think about is how, how does it how is it playing in there? You know, uh, so for me at least, and, and I can't speak for other people. For me, the fruit components come second, or sometimes even third. Uh, the first thing that hits me is is how it actually feels in my mouth, and to me, that's structure. It's the mm -hmm. foundation of the wine, and then I, I then I concentrate on acidity, and then I concentrate on fruit. So, uh, and when it all comes together. Uh, in harmony, it's it's a symphony in your mouth, and and that's what that Chardonnay was. It it had wonderful uh, structure, acidity, and uh, and balance. It just I, I don't know if this word will resonate with you or with my listeners. But it had great integrity. Mm, thank you. Yeah, it's a, I think that's a beautiful description of of structure, and I 
I, like you, feel that it's one of the most important things, especially when I'm thinking about, should I age this wine uh, or is it age worthy or not? And, you know, it's the framework. It's what's it's what's holding the acidity and the fruit and everything, um, the the foundation or the the whole elements of what what uh, what holds the wine together. And I think you're you're absolutely right. There are wines that I've tasted that are delicious. But I know that they're not going to get better with time. They're they're ready to enjoy now. And then there are wines that maybe the the structure has everything kind of inside it, but the structure is maybe too aggressive. It's too forceful. And that needs time. But uh, I think today, in today's world, not everybody has, you know, room for 4,000 bottles and wants to age a wine for 10 years. And so as producers, we have to be very careful about making a wine that has enough structure to go for 10 or 15 years, but can be enjoyable today uh, when when you release that wine. And with maybe the art of decanting uh, coming into play, um, that can be achieved. And uh, it's, it's one of the challenges of making great wine is <laughs> how do you make it enjoyable today and better for tomorrow in a way? <laughs> well, we are definitely synchronized in our thinking here because I was just going to tell you Paul, that I think the problem that you have with your wines uh, is that you want to put them down, but you want to drink them now. (laughs) (laughs) And not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But, you know, (laughs) I was literally thinking, you know, these are wines that you may want to give two or three or four years and and, and revisit them, but they're just so delicious now. It's like, boom, you're right. And if you don't have the um, capability or opportunity to lay these wines down, don't. Drink them now. Go for it. Um, you, you mentioned your your tasting room. Uh, where is it? Lo- you, where are you specifically located in Sonoma County? Uh, so if I'll, I'll kind of use the reference of from San Francisco and then kind of hone in. So we're 60 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, and then you head west. Uh, so you're going north on the 101. You head west in of Santa Rosa into a small town called Sebastopol. Um, we are about 10 miles in from the ocean. So we have a lot of kind of coastal influence and fog uh, permeating into the vineyards on a daily basis. Um, ebbing and flowing. So today, for example, it was 32 degrees when I woke up and it's 77 degrees right now at 3 p.m. So we have a huge diurnal temperature shift, which is great for this acidity that I'm talking about and retaining that. Uh, Just an absolutely beautiful place to grow, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Uh, And we do have a tasting room here at the winery and we love having guests. Uh, We do ask that they either send us an email to info at small vines or uh, Paul at small vines, uh, you know, just to let us know that they'd like to come. So we can make sure I'm coming out of the vineyard to meet with folks or something like that. Cause I'm, I'm not waiting in the tasting room every day. I'm actually out farming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got stuff to do. Making wine. <laughs> is it but, small, uh, small vines. Doc, I'm sorry, Paul, is it just small dot com small vines you okay so anybody listening info at smallvines.com or paul at smallvines.com go make a reservation you're gonna love it um before we wrap up can you just remind our our listeners what are the two wines we had and and what are the price points on those two wines Yes. So the first wine we had was a Pinot Noir from the 2019 vintage um, TBH Vineyard, the Barlow Homestead Vineyard. And that wine sells for $100. Um, the And there's, what was it, 254 cases produced. Um, the second wine we tried was a Chardonnay 2019 vintage TBH Vineyard Chardonnay. Uh, and that wine sells for $75 a, a bottle. And uh, we have uh, eight wines total. We taste five usually during a tasting. And they they range from starting at $55 a bottle up to $125 a bottle. So it's kind of a an escalating range as you get into these higher end single vineyard wines that we shared with you uh, for this podcast. So, And, and that's fantastic. Um, do 
Do people have to visit the winery to purchase the wines? Are they available retail? Are they available direct to consumer? Uh, We do distribute small amounts of the wine, mostly in restaurants, um, but we love our hand-sell bottle shops across the country that are incredible partners as well. So you can find them uh, online. Um, We do have a mailing list, uh, but unfortunately, most of our wines tend to be sold out most of the time. So um, so if you join the mailing list, that will, the next time we release wines, we'll try to, you know, make sure we send an allocation offering, uh, to, to, you know, different folks. Um, so, and then of course we have wines we allocate to the tasting room. So I never want people to come to the tasting room and not be able to purchase wines. That when is so here. frustrating. Uh, yeah. We're really <laughs> glad you like our wine, but you can't buy any. <laughs> yeah, no, I've done that tasting enough times to say I'll never do that. So we do allocate, like I say, uh, wine specific wines to the tasting room. And so there's always wine to purchase when you come and visit. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we like being available, although we wish we could make more wine and have the wines more available. Uh, you know, I, I need to buy another vineyard and plant it. So it's going to be a few years and, uh, <laughs> well, at, at, a, at a one pound per vine, uh, you're going to have to change your n- name to micro vine. <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah. you could put like a couple more pounds on the vine and call it, you know, medium vines, or <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but small vines is it's absolutely wonderful. Paul, you have been so generous with your time today and your knowledge. You know, I always think there's something new to learn in wine. And today I learned quite a few things, you know, everything from the size of the vineyards, you know, being tied to the tractor size to, hey, you can have Pinot Noir before you have the Chardonnay. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, and then I'm going to give it a, a try. It's uh, why not? But again, thank you so much for your time today. It's just a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. And Scott, thank you for having me uh, join your podcast. This has been a, a lot of fun. It's a pleasure to get to know you. And I hope you and all of your listen listeners uh, come out and visit us uh, out here in Sonoma County. We'd love to have you. Uh, and I would love to visit you myself. I will try to get out there next summer. Fantastic. I look forward to it. Thanks again. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Fine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. And until the next time, remember, do good. Drink well.